By the way, I just want to mention that Stacy Kuehl's father passed this week, and I do not know how it got missed in the bulletin, so apologies for that. There were just so many people, and I, we kept making changes and adding things in, and I think somehow it got accidentally dropped out, Stacy, wherever you are, so um, again, apologies for, for missing that. Notice I've got two Bibles up here today. I'll, mention, I'll say why in just a second here, but... <clears throat> Do have your Bibles open. This is the only way I figured I could do 50 verses, was not reading it and not putting every single verse up on uh, the screen, but we'll be talking and covering the ground, and you'll have it there where you can check that what I'm saying is not uh, completely bogus and made up, all right? In life, uh, gain sometimes only comes when you first tear something down. How many, how many, that's almost axiomatic. How many things can you think of off, right off the top of your head where that ends up being true? I know a lot of you are really muscular here, so that's obviously been a lot of time at the gym, and, and you know, everybody knows that you have to tear the muscle down a little bit. You get micro tears as you're lifting, and then the body responds by building the muscle back up stronger than when you started to tear it down. Famously, if you go into the Army and they get you in boot camp, what do they do? What's the first thing they do? We're so glad you're here. You're fine just the way you are. Right? Isn't that how the, I always heard that's how the Army worked. Um, no, they tear you down. They tear you down to just nothing, and then they build you back into the image that they want you to have, which is, would be the image of a U.S. soldier. I've known a couple people who have had all of their bone marrow completely destroyed. How many have known somebody that's gone through that procedure, where they literally just tear down the body's entire immune system, and they break it down to zero, and they sort of start over with a bone marrow transplant, and sometimes that's, that's brought about really miraculous, miraculous healing that's the way it is in conversion. That's what the gospel does. It tears us down in order to build us up. You think about the Apostle Paul, and this is quite appropriate because remember, we're, we're in that portion there in Acts where Stephen is preaching, and of course he'll be martyred. I, I'm not giving away the end of the story. You already know that, I'm sure. Uh, and it's going to be Paul that's right there watching and, and, and sort of a, a passive participant in all that. And, and He's listening to Stephen just as we are reading it, and he needs Christ. But his, he's got those blinders on. He cannot see the truth, and God has to tear Paul down. And that's what he does, too. Paul gets torn down. You talk about a guy that got stripped down you know, to nothing in order to find Christ. Look what Paul says in Philippians. There, now we're ready for that passage from earlier. But, but whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And you're like, why did you add Philippians when you already have 50 verses in Acts? It, it's going to tie in, okay? It's, it's all going to make sense. We're, uh, yeah, we're only doing 50 verses to today, and that's, that, that is a daunting task. task. But uh, consider the backdrop where we're at. I want to catch you back up so that you see what's going to happen here. I think if I get you on the right track at the beginning, if you can stay really focused during the beginning, then the whole sermon is going to make a lot of sense. If, if I lose you now, yeah, who knows whether you're going to figure it out. But So Stephen's there. We know who Stephen is. He's sort of a proto-deacon, a prototype of 
what deacons would become. He and the others, uh, totals uh, of seven there. His job description initially was just to help the apostles by taking care of the widows who had been ignored and neglected. And yet we, we see him go on and he, he does signs and wonders and he, and he, and he preaches and he gets, he gets pulled into this debate. And finally he gets pulled before the whole council and he has to give an account. What I want you to understand is that the sermon he then preaches, the 50, actually 49, because the first verse doesn't even, isn't Stephen's words, but 49 verses are a summary of the Old Testament, but they're, but they're lined up with regard to the charges made against Stephen. So if you want to understand why the summary is as it is, it actually tracks with the accusations that are made against him. He is charged with blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the holy place, which would be both Israel as a land, but also more, you know, more specifically the temple in Jerusalem, and against the law. I like Stephen. How many like Stephen? Plucky guy. You know, he's punching above his weight class, if you will, but I mean, he just, uh, he just tells it like it is. He takes no prisoners. Instead of trying to prove that he's innocent, you will notice there's not one word here where he addresses the charges against him. He never says, oh, oh, no, I'm, I'm not, uh, or, or, oh, yes, I do, or anything like that. The entire time, what he does is he seeks to tear them down. This is a sermon of destruction. <laughs> you say, it just looks like a summary of the Old Testament. No, this... This is going to, this nails them to the, there's a reason why when he's done with them, they are so infuriated that they're willing to kill him. And that's what he's doing. But, but I believe if you look at the purpose of it, it's exactly the purpose of the gospel, which we have to tear down in order to build up. That's the big idea of the sermon. To save us, God must first tear us down and then put us back together. If you're the one carrying that gospel message to someone, it's risky isn't it? It's risky. Well, one risk would be that we just ignore that, the first part, and you know, just, we just spread sunshine wherever we go, and we think of the gospel as just, well, it's good news, but it's good news that follows some really bad news, and that tearing down really has to take place. He's going to tear down, and I've listed them as myths, okay? There are five myths. There are five, we could call them false confidences that these people are trusting in that are, that's blocking them from salvation. These are myths that block them from accessing the grace in Jesus Christ. Are you tracking with me? So all this deals with the accusations made against Stephen, but he's flipping them on them and he's showing them their own fault, their, their own need for the gospel. So first myth that he has to destroy, God was limited to their land. That God was limited to their land. The temple and the land are kind of inseparable. and We'll look at both of those. That's why instead of four responses to the four charges, there's five. Because I'm, I'm handling two separately. One the land, one the temple. But uh, if you look at verse 1, it begins with the priest saying to Stephen, Are these things true? So everything that follows should be logically a response to that question. Fifty verses seems like a lot at first. How many feel like that's... Way more than Pastor Jay should be trying to preach on. Yeah? 50 verses. That's forever. That's forever. But how many 
verses would it take you to write a summary of the entire Old Testament? I looked in my Bible, and my Bible, I don't know if you can, man, I better unzip it to be able to show you, but my Bible has an awful lot of footnotes and whatnot and pages and illustrations because I'm just a kid at heart. But um, I looked at that in the Old Testament, 1,731 pages. 17. But I thought for, you know, just, I think this is interesting because I never get any other use out of my Hebrew Bible but to show you, like, hey, it's a big book. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with the, with the Hebrew. But, uh, yeah, look at this. The, these pages are just crammed full of, of nothing but Hebrew text for the most part with just a little tiny footnote area. 1,574 pages. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, so, so you talk about 49 verses to summarize all of that. Where, is, where exactly will he go? What are his high points going to be? And that's going to, you look for the structure, it's going to pop up at, at you. He follows a kind of chronological order, but he starts with Abraham. So he skips the first portion all, you know, over Adam and Noah and all of the rest in the Tower of Babel. He gets to Abraham, the, the father of faith. And the first thing he says about Abraham is this. Don't miss it. It says, the God of glory, you know, the one that we worship at the temple, in, in, where that's the only appropriate place is the temple. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, if you, if you were just reading over this, you just might read that in Mesopotamia part and not even think about it. Yeah, well, of course, that's where he was. He was in Mesopotamia. But Stephen's making a point. He was in Mesopotamia. Do you understand? The God of glory. The God of glory that we worship at the temple was in Mesopotamia, calling our father Abraham, who, by the way, was born in Mesopotamia. And then he, from Mesopotamia, where did he go? He bothers to say, well, and then he went to Haran. Where's Haran? Not in Israel. So far, we're not in Israel. Then verse 4, Abraham comes to the land. He finally arrives there from the land of, of the Chaldeans. But what, what's interesting here, here is that immediately how Stephen puts it in perspective, he says in verse 5 that Abraham had no inheritance in it, not even a foot length. He didn't even have a foot length of the land of Israel at that time. It was promised to him for sure. But it's kind of like Stephen's going, hey, even Abraham, he gets here, wasn't born here, gets here, didn't get to have any of it yet. And then what is he, where does he go from there? There's a lot of story about Abraham he could have talked about. Think of all the things he could, he, could, he skips over Isaac, that seems like a key thing. But what is he, what's the next thing he says? He says, well, you know, God appeared to him there and told him that his descendants would spend 400 years in the promised land. Oh, wait, no, not in the promised land. They're going to spend 400 years, Where? In Egypt. In Egypt. Are you seeing this? So, so Stephen skips over so much detail, and he already puts the people of God back in Egypt. And then he jumps right onto the Joseph account, passing over lots of material. Now we've got, he, he talks about Joseph and how Joseph was sold into slavery. Guess where he left and where he ended up? He was in the promised land. He gets sold into slavery in order that God can deliver the people of God by doing what? Do you recall how God delivered the people of Israel through Joseph? By taking them to Egypt. 
By taking, are, are you noticing the whole geography of this? Remember, they accused Stephen of speaking against this place. Now, in fairness, it does mention during this little bit of something about the Holy Land. You know what it tells us about the Holy Land? Jacob got taken there and buried there. So it's a great cemetery at this point. That's about all he's really said so far about the Holy Land. When we get to Moses, he tells us of, of Moses being born in Egypt, being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. I'm going to come back to verse 27, but in verse 28, we have him fleeing Egypt in order to go back where? You're thinking the Holy Land, right? No, <laughs> he doesn't go back to He flees Egypt. He goes to Midian. Midian, where's Midian? Not in Israel. <laughs> Not in Israel. And while he's there, he gets out in the wilderness, and he goes up on Mount Sinai, and he meets God there. And where is that, that, sign, that place of Sinai? Where, where in the Holy Land is Sinai? It's not. It's not in the Holy Land. And look at the part of the story Stephen bothers to tell. It says, Then the Lord said to him, this is speaking about where he meets God on Sinai. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet for the place, underline that, place, where you are standing is holy, underline that, ground. The place where you are standing. What was Stephen speaking against according to them? This place. This place. What was the place that they were talking about? Well, they were talking about the temple. This, what, this holy place, right? Look back at chapter 6 now. We're, you know, we really were going back. We can't get through 7. We're going to go back to 6. Go back to 6. Uh, 6.13. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. The word holy, the word place are the same as Stephen mentions on Sinai, which is not in the holy place, but where God was and where God spoke to Moses, that was a holy place. Isn't that interesting? Are you seeing this? This, should, this pattern should be just jumping out at you at this point. The holy place. As it continues, Stephen keeps locating God's acts in places like Egypt and in the wilderness. God is with them there way before he ever actually gets them into Israel. In fact, there's very little of the whole passage that deals with their time in the land of Israel. What's Stephen doing? He is taking a wrecking ball to this confidence that they have that they are in. See, they're looking at it like, well, we're in the place. We're in the holy place. In fact, you know, the people, most of the people that are coming against Stephen are Sadducees. They have, they're the power brokers. This is their house. This is their temple. They, they run it. They own it. This land of Israel, this is where all the promises are. And, and they have this mistaken idea that that is enough to save them, that this, that this place puts them in that right relationship to God. And Stephen is just knocking that prop, that first myth. He's just knocking right out from under. Do you see that? I'm, am I, you tracking with me? Okay. Myth number two, God is limited to the temple. That's a myth. Now, that's, it's barely different from the first, which I acknowledged at the beginning when we talked about place. We said that, that the place is both the land, but it's also more specifically the temple. It's kind of like, how many of you fooled around with a, a microscope at some point in your life? Yeah? 
Don you? Yeah. My mom was a biology teacher. I used to spend a lot of wasted hours at, uh, at her school, you know, because she had to do something with me while she was out working, and, uh, you know, on a Saturday or something. So I used to play with the microscopes a lot, probably ruined a few in the course of time. But, you know, you, we'd have a, a little slide there with some pond water on it. That's always a good prospect, right, Don? Some pond water. Looking for some little amoebas or something there, and you, you, you look at it, and you you know, 10x or whatever, yeah, well, you know, go down to 50 and see what we see there. So you're kind of drilling down, looking, looking up closer, and that's kind of what's going on. We've gone now from the land to the temple. What does Stephen say about the temple? What does he say about the temple? All right, first of all, take what we said about Sinai, where it was called the holy place. Holy ground, this place is holy ground. That was on Sinai, not at the temple at that moment. He reminds them in verse 44 that while they were in the wilderness, they had the tent of meeting. Not the temple, but the tent of meeting. And it worked. Right? When they went into the Holy Land, what, what proceeded ahead of them when they went into the, into the Holy Land? Was it a temple? No, they didn't even have Jerusalem yet. That's the, Jerusalem's called the city of David because it, it, was, it, was, it was among the Canaanites until that time. But rather, it was the tent of meeting with the Ark of the Covenant that went before them. Are you getting a feel for this? Now look at verse 4, and this is going to kind of come together. Speaking of David, it says, Who found favor... I'm sorry, I said verse 4. Four verses. Four verses, beginning in verse 46. Who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. This is almost like an aside, like, yeah, David, but really it was Solomon. He's not quite saying who cares exactly, but he's putting it into perspective. And then he says this. He said, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And you're like, wow, is, is Stephen just way over his skis on this? He's kind of diminishing the temple, which was a holy place. And, and, and it was built according to the pattern that was given by God on, at Sinai and, and so forth. You, you it's kind of the, the perspective, though, because if you look at what Solomon said when he built it, he said, but God, you don't live in houses built by human hands. Like Solomon acknowledged that even as he was building it. And then you get to the book of Isaiah, which is being quoted here, and Isaiah puts it into perspective. He's like, God made the universe, people. We have a little bit better appreciation for that today than they did then. Think about how big the universe is. And God is over, above, beyond, created all of that. How is he going to just dwell in, in some house? They had taken the sacred place of the temple and become so corrupt as to remove all of the meaning. They had propped themselves up with the idea that as long as we're in control of this place, and, and you know, even if the Romans are all around us, but if we've got our place and we've got our house, and that's all, and, and we're doing the right things, and we're dotting all our I's and crossing all our, our T's, then, then God has to be happy with us. I think they thought they could almost leverage that against God. The way some Christians feel uh, about their faith in Christ, they, they go and they sin, and they go, but you can't do anything to me because of Jesus, <laughs> right? which isn't quite the right attitude. Hope you figured that one out, right? 
When you love Christ and you've received the forgiveness of your sin, your desire is not to sort of cover your sins in that sense, but, but having had your sins covered, you want to live a holy life. But the, but the Jewish people were looking at the temple in that kind of way. Like, God, you can't touch us. we got the temple. Oh, and look at this bad guy. He was speaking bad things about the temple, which he, he wasn't even doing. But they're, but, they're, but they're finding great comfort in that, and Stephen just destroys that, that confidence. Third myth, they loved God's law, that they loved God's law. Well, they loved loving God's law, for sure. They, Paul could talk about the, his Jewish countrymen, that they had a certain zeal. They had, you know, Paul had a zeal for the law of God. Not according to faith, though, not, not as, as relating to it according to faith. Rather, it was that sort of external, we're going we're gonna to tithe on our dill and, and our cumin and all, you know, whatever else, other little mustard and so forth, but the, ignore the weightier matters. We're going to clean the outside of the cup. We're going to make sure all the externals are good with regard to the law, but the deeper heart of the law, they were ignoring. Stephen stood charged with speaking against the law. What does he say about this? Well, actually, he says nothing about the law in the summary section. The summary section is verse 2 through 50. When he gets to the indictment, the last few verses before they kill him, he's going to talk about the law. But he doesn't actually specifically use the term the law. He says this. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us now that's the law isn't it that's that's the law he's talking about and he identifies with his jewish countrymen here he says our our fathers later he's going to say your fathers he's going to draw a distinction but here he's still he's still identifying with them and he's saying look the law of god is a good thing where does it say the law of god is a good things you're saying probably if you're looking at it well he's calling these things living oracles meaning they are from the living God, and they are oracles, laws, rules, so forth, that deliver life to those who keep them. So he's, he's, he's pro-law of God. But then, right about that point where they're like, yes, that's true, Stephen, they are, they're, they're living oracles, then he drops the hammer on them. That's kind of the setup all the way throughout. He just, he just pounding them. This is what he says. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Bazinga. Or if you prefer, oh, snap. <laughs> this, this, oh, you're, you're going to accuse me of speaking against this place and against this law? Do you not remember our whole history? Do you not remember that at the very moment God is delivering the law to them, their hearts are back in Egypt. Their hearts are far from God. They are full of sin. They rejected the law. They rejected the lawgiver. See, all their trust, all of their comfort lay in the fact that they were good Jewish people who followed God and kept his law and, and, and lived in his place and worshipped him in his place. They saw themselves as the ones with the white hats. And Stephen, all Stephen is doing here after they've made all these accusations against him is he's holding up a mirror to him and go, you might want to look at this again because you're actually staring into a photo negative yourself. You see these white hats in the photo negative that you're looking at? Yeah, in reality, those are black. You're just seeing them wrongly. 
you're, you're accusing me of these things. I'm not even going to make a defense of myself. I'm just going to show you that all of these things that you're saying, you're guilty of yourself. Fourth myth. They loved God. That would be a myth. <laughs> Stephen supposedly spoke blasphemous words against God. He doesn't say, oh, yes, I do. I love God. I, 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 no, no. Instead, he shows them their lack of love. Israel came up out of Egypt with Moses leading him. They were in the wilderness. What were they doing in the wilderness, basically? As, you, as you've read the story, if you put it in a nutshell, they were in the, in the, they were in the wilderness being stiff-necked and rebellious and, and, and grumbling. And then you look at verse 40, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You remember that part of the story, don't you? You talk about one of the most embarrassing stories that the rabbis didn't even like to go near and talk about for the most part. It was what they did with the golden calf. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, the images, the image that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. That was their love for God. Their vaunted love for God, such that they thought they were in a position to accuse Stephen of blasphemy against God, Th this is their inheritance. This is where they were. The people of Israel, at the very moment that God was carrying them up out of Egypt like a father carries an infant son, during that very moment, they were worshiping other gods. They were making a calf idol, and they were worshiping the gods of Egypt at that time. Can you believe that? You ever hear, you've probably heard stories, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to get a drink. You've probably heard stories about people that cheated on their spouse on their honeymoon. Have you ever heard that? Those, it's probably rare, but you hear about it. And you, what's your immediate response to that? Horror, right? Yeah. Like, oh my goodness. I, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I get that, that bad things happen and, and people fall, and, but you collapsed on your honeymoon? Really, that's all, that's, the, that's all the more faithfulness you could muster? You couldn't even get through your honeymoon? They, they were in their honeymoon, as it were, with God. And, and they turned away, and their hearts turned back to Egypt, and they worshiped other gods. Stephen's like, yeah, you think you're a people that love God? Why don't you just look back at our history for a moment and, and judge that for yourself? The final myth to be busted is this. They loved his servant. They loved his servant. This is about Moses in the first instance, but it's also about the one that would come after the prophet who would arise after him that was like Moses, a.k.a. Jesus. How had that gone as to their history? Here's what's funny, and this is what shows you, if, you've, if you're still in doubt about whether this is tracking with these, these points of accusation, look at the disproportionate time they spend when dealing with Moses Talking about that initial encounter with the Egyptian where he killed the Egyptian. You know the story I'm talking about? Where, where he comes down to see what's going on with the people of God and he sees one of his brothers, one of his Hebrew brothers being oppressed by an Egyptian and he attacks the Egyptian and he kills him. And that didn't go over well. It, did, it proved not to play very well. It says he supposed, this is, this is Moses, he's reasoning, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation. By his hand, 
but they did not understand. God sent them a deliverer. God sent them a redeemer, and they preferred Egyptian bondage. Now jump ahead ten more verses. Still dealing with Moses. It says, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. You, you know, are you picking up on some stuff there? Talking about Moses, and he uses the term ruler. You could say king or Christ there, couldn't you? A ruler and a redeemer. But they rejected him. Who had the real problem with Moses? Was it Stephen? Again, Stephen's not bothering to defend himself. Nowhere in here does Stephen go, and you know what, I'd like to refute the charges against me. Nope, he just shows them. Their fathers rejected God's Redeemer sent to them. They rejected him from the get-go, before, before he fled to Midian, and then after he got back, and when he took him into the wilderness again and again and again, this Savior that God sent to them, they had rejected. Though Moses did signs and wonders, does that sound familiar at all? See, signs, wonders, redeemer, ruler. Hmm. Think he's trying to get at something there? Yeah. They rejected the ruler and redeemer that God sent to them doing signs and wonders. And, and they put him to death. And in a great sign and wonder, he was raised from the dead. But they had rejected him. And yet they stood there accusing Stephen of doing wrong. By the way, what, what had Stephen just been doing? Signs and wonders. Yeah, in the name of Jesus. And they were going to kill him as, as well. The saddest of all things is that they rejected Christ. Well, that's a quick flyover of 50 verses. It was not as painful, I hope, as, as you thought that it was going to be. At first glance, you look at it and you go, wow, I don't know, and I don't know if you've ever been reading through and you got to it and you thought, what is this jumbled up odd history all about? Why, why this particular su summary? But what you see is Stephen is taking the indictment they made against him, and, and, and it is a sermon preached at them. It is a destructive sermon. I don't know that I've ever come into the pulpit going, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to destroy them. There's probably been times in my heart where I might have liked to have tried that, you know, but... But no, I mean, I think in, in a very real sense, this was a sermon that was all about their sin and their faithlessness and their failure, and he was just absolutely socking it to them. Seen from a merely human vantage point, you could say that Stephen was taking a risk. A huge risk. And you go, well, but there's no risks with God. There's no risks. It's God, because God's, God's in charge and everything is following according to God's sovereign plan. The problem is, from our human perspective, and, and I believe this to be true, though we have the word of God telling us that God is sovereign, we, we are not capable of seeing big, the big picture every day in all that God is doing. It's, it's impossible for us to see all that's going to happen. Stephen cannot see how pivotal he is, unless God chose to reveal it to him. He does not know how God is going to use his life, and yes, his death, to do huge things in the kingdom of God. All he knows is, I'm walking into this situation, and I've got, I'm surrounded by enemies, and by golly, <laughs> he probably wouldn't have said by golly, uh, I'm going to take it to him. I'm, I'm going to tear 
them down to the point that they see their need for Christ, their Redeemer. And you took that risk. And one could say, well, it didn't pay off from, from one vantage point. It didn't go like Pentecost, did it? I mean, Peter did almost the exact same sermon, give or take. I mean, a lot of the same elements were in Peter's sermon. And thousands believed, and they were cut to the heart, and they're like, what do we have to do? He's like, repent and believe in Jesus. And, and if Stephen thought that was going to be the response, that is not at all how it went. So the first thing I'd like to say as we wrap this up is if you're not a believer today, um, please don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> please don't shoot the messenger. We don't want to do that. I mean, when we're sharing the and I'm speaking to an unbeliever now, if there be one here or listening, um, when we preach the gospel to you, if you're really sensitive to what's happening, you may feel like we are attacking you. And in a sense, that is how the gospel comes to, to, to fallen man. I mean, it, it, it tells us of our sin. It says to us, I am not good enough as I stand. Yeah, I, okay, whatever my heritage is, whatever place that I can brag about, ooh, I'm from this place, I got this going, I got that going, I try really hard, and I help people when I see somebody I always put money in their cup, or whatever it is that you're clinging to, the gospel comes along and just just slaps every one of those excuses until you're just rocked. And then you can respond one of two ways. Either you can get really mad about that and, and, and you know, in hostility, turn your back or do worse, or you, or you can find salvation. When we preach the gospel, as Stephen preached the gospel, we, yes, there is a tearing down, but it is so that you might respond to the gospel and be saved. To receive salvation, what do you have to do? You have to see your sin. You have to see your inadequacy. You have to see your inability. That's what Paul couldn't see that day. He was called Saul at the time, but he was in agreement with what they did to Stephen. He thought he was fine the way he was. You have to break through that. You have to see that, that, that condemnation is upon you, upon your sin. You have to feel that desperation and then turn from that and turn and look upon Jesus Christ and place your faith in him. And when you do that, this message that is so damning suddenly becomes a message of life. It tells of a redeemer. If you're a believer today, then I would, uh, I, I, what do you take from this? What, what can you take from it? Um, first thing I want to say is uh, risk. Risk. Take a risk. You are taking a risk. That's, that's what we bear when we, when we bear the gospel. And we do not see, as little human creatures, we do not fully see the pivotal way God may be using us in someone's life. What we feel is our heart racing when we think about sharing the gospel. But share, we must. We, we, we must. We must disabuse people of their, of their myths. We must preach the gospel. Love them enough to preach the gospel. He said, well, this doesn't sound loving. Stephen risked his life to bring them the gospel. The easiest thing in the world would have been to have just stood there and said, wait, I think you got me all wrong here, guys. I love nothing more than this temple. I love nothing. You know, you're all good guys. I'm just one of you. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to have done. But instead, he took the risk and, and he bore the cost. And that is love. So preach the gospel. Tell 
the gospel. Take the risk. Take the risk. Let's pray. Father, we, we can be uh, really big chickens sometimes when it, when it comes to things like this, probably because we're savvy enough to really understand. We like to think that we're too ignorant. Um, but the reality, I think, a lot of times, Lord, is we see exactly where this takes us. If we tell people the gospel, they might not repent and believe. They, they, they might uh, sock us in the snoot, and it, and, it, and it might be bloody. It might be hard. Help us, we pray, Lord. Help us to see the need for love and to take the risk. And I, I pray that, it, that if there's a person here that doesn't know you, that, that you would just destroy, tear down every false confidence and myth that they're trusting in and cause them, Lord, in desperation to look to your son, Jesus Christ, the ruler and the redeemer, to receive him as Savior even now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.